So whew, here we go, Romans chapter 11. Uh, let's jump in. We're going to finish this chapter uh, this morning. And we're going to start in verse uh, 32, and we'll finish, finish through uh, verse 36. So let's go ahead and let's just go ahead and read the entire section here, and then we'll get started. Uh, verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And then he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so we jump into verse 32 and one of the things that, you know, again, as we study the Bible, one of the things we try to model as we teach is, is how do you study the Bible for yourself? Well, it's always good to notice that that first word of verse 32, the word for. Um, it gives you an indication that he's going to be further explaining something that he was just talking about. So what was he talking about? Well, you go back to verse 30 and 31, and, and basically he's talked about two groups of people, big groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And so Jews were in a, a position of privileged, um, just a, in a position of privilege, in a p- position of blessing via the Abrahamic covenant. And the Gentiles at that time, um, they could tap into that blessing, but they had to convert to Judaism. They had to come to the Jews and the Jewish religion. But many Gentiles, as we see in history, rejected God. They weren't persuaded that there was one God. They weren't persuaded that he had a righteous standard. They weren't persuaded that he made a provision for that standard. They were persuaded in the, the religion of their youth, which was polytheism. And so the, the text tells us that, that they were disobedient. That's what the word disobedient there. He actually uses a special word for disobedience than he would normally use. It's, it, it has the idea of not being persuaded, um, unwilling to believe. But then something unique happened in the history of the Old Testament. We see the Jewish people, although in a place of privilege, in a position where they could benefit from the prophecy of the Old Testament and actually recognize their Messiah when he came. When he came on the scene, we, we picked that up in Matthew 1, when Jesus came on the scene, his own did not receive him. They rejected him. And so that was a mechanism by which God then extended mercy to the Gentiles, those who were formerly disobedient, now that the Jews were disobedient. And so now we get into verse 32, 4. And what is he explaining here? Well, verse 32 says, For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. And so what we're going to find here is that God is, is well, Paul's going to expand really on the connection between disobedience and mercy in God's mind. How, how does God connect disobedience and mercy? In fact, it would seem that if you were disobedient, you wouldn't get mercy, right? That's, that's typically how humans think. And what we're going to find in this whole section today is we've got a lot to praise God for, but one of the things we have to praise God for is he is not like us. That, that's a good thing. And some, some days we don't understand that. We wish we were like him. We wish we could understand why he did the things. But trust me on this one, we are glad God is not like us. Because if some little punk is going to thumb their nose at me, I'm probably not going to naturally give them mercy. I'm going to want to body slam them or hit them with an elbow off the top turnbuckle, right? Those of you WWF WWE fans going way back there, right? That's typically how we respond. We want to get them. 
That's why when people cut us off in traffic, you know, we, we're just trying to help them. We just want to teach them a lesson, right? Because we love them so much, right? No, I mean, we can go on and on through life. We are not like God. People mistreat us, boom, I want to drop a hammer on them. See, God connects disobedience and mercy differently than you and I do, and it's so, we should be so grateful for this. And remember here in this, in this section that he uses this word for disobedience that means uh, refusing to be persuaded, a willful rejection, willful unbelief, you could say. They, they refuse to be persuaded. And so what does God do? Why, why, why does God, uh, as this next phrase says, why does he commit them all or shut them all or enclose them all, put them all in a pen? You know, it's kind of like, you know, teaching the, the two and three-year-old class, right? We, we get them in a pen and we lock all the doors so they can't get out, right? We, we enclose them. We put them all in the same spot. Why does God do that? Why does he commit them all to disobedience? We just went through the two large groups of people, Israel and the Gentiles. And you know, what we find is that this is not a unique concept that Paul communicates this other places. Uh, He communicated back in Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. This this over. Um, arching concept of all, everybody, everyone that's ever existed. We find in Galatians 3.22, Paul writes this, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And we're going to see kind of a similar reason given here as to why God does this. Now, one of the things we, we need to point out um, is, is it's, as, it's as if God has enclosed each person, Jew or Gentile, in a pen that they cannot get out of called disobedience. Now, normally we would look at that and say, well, that's not fair. How come, how come God won't let people out of there? How come God is forcing everybody into this one pen? It's, obviously, it's not a good pen. It's not the obedience pen. It's the disobedience pen. Why would God put everybody there? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't seem like God. Well, here's the thing we've got to understand. God did not do this to condemn them. This, this is what we've got to understand. See, many people would take that and say, oh, God is so, so judgmental. I don't want any part of a God like that. He just condemns people. He didn't do this to condemn them. What we're going to find is he did it so he might extend mercy to them. This is, this is so important because when we see the definition of mercy, mercy by definition is not extending the judgment due to them. So he doesn't put them in a pen of disobedience so he can zap everybody at the same time. He puts them all there so that they realize that they have need of something. They have need of God's mercy. And so he puts them in this pen not to extend the judgment that's due to them. And so the irony of it is this, those who do not remain in the pen, those who say, you know what, I'm going to find obedience on my own. I'm going to go crank it out on my own. I'm going to do what I need to do to get to heaven on my own they won't receive mercy because they don't understand that they need mercy. In fact, when you think about mercy in general, you know, by definition, you cannot extend mercy to somebody if they don't deserve judgment. By definition. Because mercy is not extending the judgment due to them. If they don't earn it or deserve it, how can you extend mercy to somebody? If I drive home today and I put my car on cruise control and I'm going the exact speed limit, and a police officer pulls me over and says, you know, I'm going to let you go today, but you need to slow down. I'm going to say, get out of here, buddy. I had it on cruise control. 
I wasn't even speeding. I don't need your mercy because I didn't break the law. And so what God has done is he's put everyone in a pen. Everyone has broken his law. Everyone is in this pen of disobedience. Why does God do that? The beautiful message of the text is really simple. In fact, he, and I can't go backwards. Nuts, can you take me backwards? Or are we record? I think we're recording. Anyways, I can't go backwards, but see it in the text. Why did God do this? Go to verse um, 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience. This word, that, very important word in the Greek. It's what they, it's what they call hina. It's a hina clause. And what a hina clause does is it gives you the purpose for which somebody committed the action. So why did God commit them all to disobedience? That he could judge them all? That he could condemn the world? No, that's not what our text says. It says that for the purpose that he might have mercy upon all. And see, one of the things that we see with God, and this is consistent with his character all throughout the Bible, you know, it's like, it's like you guys have seen or maybe heard of Babe Ruth. Maybe you've seen the picture, heard the old story where he steps to the plate at, I think it was Wrigley Field, and before he gets up, he points to center field, right? And for those of you that play baseball, you know what that means. I'm about to take this picture, and I'm about to hit a home run right where I pointed it. He's kind of calling his shot, right? He's telegraphing. Legend has it that he, he hit the home run exactly where he pointed, and that might be true because he hit over 700 of them, so it might, that might have been one of them. I don't know. Um, but, but God kind of called his shot back in Genesis 12. Now, many people had an idea or a thought on how God would fulfill or call that shot. And what we've seen in Romans 9 through 11 is how did he do that? How did he actually fulfill the shot that he called back in Genesis 12? So he projected that he planned to extend mercy to everybody in the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, before we, we leave Romans 9 through 11, let's read the Abrahamic covenant one more time so you can see this, that this was not something that, that God derived as a plan B. When Israel rejected him, he had planned to extend mercy to all, even back in Genesis 12. And so in Genesis 12, 1, he says, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And one of the ways that Israel would be blessed and one of the ways that Gentiles would be blessed is through the extension of mercy to them, not giving them what they deserve. And so this is, uh, was projected and, and telegraphed, if you will, by God all the way back then. However, what was not telegraphed, and however, the reason for Romans 9 through 11, why does, why is Paul just camped out in this section is, is he didn't telegraph how he was going to do it. The Jews had a specific view on how God was going to do this Abrahamic covenant thing, but he didn't telegraph how he was going to do it. He didn't get behind the mechanics. What were some of the mechanics that we've looked at? Well, Israel would be temporarily set aside due to their disobedience, partially. Partially, some of them would, some of them responded to the gospel, but there would be a setting aside. And the reason God set them aside was that he might extend mercy now to the Gentiles. And so that was the mechanics behind it. And, and so the Jews, if you remember, they thought Gentiles would one day be blessed. They had no problem with that. It's in plain language in the Abrahamic covenant. 
but it was always understood that they would be blessed in conjunction with their kingdom. When their kingdom came, then Gentiles would be blessed. So to see this happening without the coming of the kingdom, that was confusing to them. Against hence the reason Paul has, has gone into this long uh, description. And so Paul is, is closing that section. That verse 32, especially that last phrase, is a great summary of the character of God and the great summary of this whole section. God committed them all to disobedience that he might show mercy to all. See, that's God's heart behind this whole mechanics of how he was going to bring about the Abrahamic covenant. And now Paul gets to the end. And many commentators use this example. I couldn't really think of a better one because I think it really describes what we're about to read. And you know how it is. I don't know if anybody has ever climbed to a mountain peak, but if you haven't, you'll relate to this comment. Sometimes when you get to the mountain peak, you've been climbing, you've been working your way up, you get to the top and you turn around and you look at where you came from. And you're like, man, this is cool. I would love to be that guy. That would, wouldn't that just be, a, I mean, maybe a few steps further back, but I would love to be that guy right there and just take in, like, even on the back side of that camera, like, what's on this side? Wouldn't that be cool? But that's, that's what Paul is going to do now through the rest of the book. It's like he takes this look back on everything that he's just been talking about, this salvation plan through the ages of history, how awesome God is to put this all together, not only for his people, but for the Gentiles. And that's why he starts in verse 33 with this, this word, oh. It, it's, 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 hard, it's hard to translate, but it's, it's a note of exclamation. It'd be like us saying, wow. Or, you know, like if you're a guy, maybe you'd be like, dude. This is incredible. I mean, something equivalent to that. And he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Again, this note of exclamation is just, in, he's just, he's looking back over what he's just written about and just blown away by the God that we serve and how he puts all these things together. And he's overwhelmed by this perfect plan that, that God has, has come up with. You know, it's, it's these doxologies for me personally are so hard to teach because how do you, how do you really communicate the depth of, of almighty God? How do you communicate that in such a way that it, that it rises our minds up a couple of notches. You know, part of, I think the problem that, that we have on a daily basis in our daily Christian life is our problems become bigger than our God. And that should never be the case for you and I. If we had a, a true understanding of who our God is, the problems then minimize, and then he overshadows everything that we're going through. And I, I wish as, as your pastor, I could lift this up even, even higher but we'll just trust the Spirit of God to do that in each one of our lives because we need that. We need to know that our God has got things under control. We need to know that God has got your back, that God is, has totally secured your salvation, that God is interested in the minute details of your daily life, that God cares. See, these are all things that we need to know. And, and part of what Paul is saying here is, wow, guys, we got an awesome God. He's awesome. He's especially in this area where he figured this whole thing out. And I, and I say that using human terms. It's not as if God needed to figure it out or that he was caught off guard by anything. He had this all under control. 
But when we look back and understand how he put this together, we're like, wow. And I'm worried about my car. Mm. Wow. And I'm worried about my finances. Wow. And I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that. And it's like, no, wow. Look at God, right? Look at, look at this God we serve. I mean, it's incredible. And so he, he starts to describe, he says, the depths of the riches, you know, and, and, and God's riches are wealth. And we've got to understand this too. They're infinitely deep. They, that means there's no, you know, it's like a treasure chest with, with no bottom to it. You just keep reaching. Remember Inspector Gadget? You know, he'd always reach into his, his bag and you'd be like, man, how did he get his arm down? And he's pulling all sorts of junk out and it's, his bag's like that big. And, and that's like God's treasure chest. You just keep reaching. Man, I didn't know it went that far. And you just keep reaching down. It's infinitely deep, especially in these two areas that Paul's going to mention. And this, this one is wisdom. And wisdom, by definition, just means skill, tact, or expertise in any art. That's our generic definition. But it's, it's really skill in the affairs of life. It's, it's especially in this area of taking knowledge and knowing specifically how to apply knowledge to specific situations in your life. And what Paul is saying is when it comes to God, the riches of his wisdom, <laughs> you, can't, you can't exhaust them. You can't exhaust the way God has skill in applying truth in these areas of life. We're talking about uh, specifically the, the salvation plan. And, and one of the cool things that we can see about our God is he knows exactly how and he also knows how to effectively execute salvation for any man who will respond. And, you know, this is one of the things that should blow our mind because you and I, if we are honest with ourselves, we can be very inconsistent, right? I mean, we, we can be very inconsistent. And some of us, although we may not admit it publicly, we can be pretty unstable as well, <laughs> pretty pretty unstable in the way that we handle life, we respond to circumstances, these kind of things. And yet all of these things God knows how to deal with to accomplish his end goal. The, the good work that God has begun in you, he will complete it in spite of your instability, in spite of your inconsistency, in spite of the fact that you've told God a million times, God, I will never do that sin again, yet to do it again the next week, if you're doing good, if not the next day, for many of us who understand what it means to fail in the Christian life. And yet, God is wise to know how to execute your salvation. He knows how to get you to the finish line. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that cool? Isn't that, isn't that awesome that we can just rest uh, our entire eternal destiny on this God who, whose depth of wisdom you cannot exhaust? And, you know, as we went through this section, you know, even when his chosen nation rejected him, it rejected the Messiah, even when the final number of Gentiles respond, God knows he has great wisdom, practical application of knowledge in every situation, how to apply fairness and mercy in every situation. If people want to get to heaven on their own, God will be fair to them. He'll give them what they deserve. The problem is they think they're going to deserve heaven. The Bible says nobody deserves heaven. Nobody can merit heaven. But he will be fair. He will give them what they deserve. They've rejected his provision, and they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Now, that's one of the things that we, we don't get excited about 
teaching that message. We want people to respond to avoid it because God has made provision so that he might extend mercy to all. And one of the things that we see in light of God's wisdom is he does this um, all in conjunction with his promises, never, never altering his character to do so. That's, that's mind-blowing. That he can take all these variables, all these moving parts, all, you know, try, again, I, not to pick on the two and three-year-olds, but try to get them to line up and go to the same spot. I mean, you are, I mean, you're gifted if you can do that. I mean, it's a miracle. If they're not like tied together with a rope, like I saw a, a field trip not long ago in a museum, all these kids tied together with a rope, you know, that's not as impressive, is it? because yeah, they're all tied together. But what if they all are free agent moral decision makers and, and one kid sees a squirrel that way and one kid sees a squirrel that way and one, one kid's just a nut and he goes that way. You know, and I mean, now, now, you got, now you're impressed if I can still get that group to the end goal. And that's what God is, is doing. And Paul, Paul says, guys, his wisdom is unreachable. And then the second thing he says is his knowledge also has no end. Now, it's interesting because this word knowledge, he could have used a different word, but he uses this word, and it means present and fragmentary knowledge. So is Paul saying that God doesn't know everything? No, I mean, that's not what he's saying. He's just emphasizing that in this present circumstance, God knew what to do. God knew how to handle the rejection of Jesus um, by his people. And so again, Paul's not emphasizing his all-knowing attribute, but he's referencing or emphasizing his incredible knowledge on how to fulfill this Abrahamic covenant to the nation in spite of all the variables they provided in the present. In spite of all the present circumstances, rejecting Christ, seeing the clear teaching from the Old Testament, seeing the, the clear prophecies that Jesus met and still rejecting them, God knows how to still accomplish his plans how to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to his people. And that's what Paul just got done explaining. And Paul's just looking back and just saying, man, this is incredible. This is incredible how he does this. In spite of great obstacles, God can remain true to his word and his character. And that the very fact that he knows how to do this, this doesn't catch him off guard, just sends Paul into this incredible doxology. He goes on to say how unsearchable are his judgments. How unsearchable are his judgments, meaning they're not even capable of being searched out. They're, they're inscrutable. You, you couldn't even look at God's plan and criticize. Now, many people try to criticize God's plan, but I've found over the years that the people that criticize God's plan typically don't understand it fully. They don't understand grace, typically, is what, what happens. And so they are very critical of God's plan. And Paul's saying, you can't even search out his judgments. You, you can't even criticize. There's no fault that you can find. His plan of action are completely inscrutable, um, and no fault can be found with his plan. He says his ways uh, are, are past finding out, meaning his paths are ways of doing things are impossible, impossible to be traced or fully explored. Um, the way God, you might say it this way, the way God does things absolutely blows our mind. You know, we all know this, this passage from Isaiah 55, but let me let me just read it to you as it, it relates well um, to our section here. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And we should have a hearty amen to that. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that is something that we, again, should be very grateful for. Now, what Paul's going to do here in verses 34 and 35 is he's going to quote a couple of Old Testament passages. And the reason he does that is he's going to bring this in um, to say, to show that the exclamation he just made in verse 33 was also what some of the prophets experienced in the Old Testament. When they begin to take in just the unfathomable nature of our God, the prophets made similar declarations or exclamations of just like, wow, I can't believe how awesome this God is. And so he's going to kind of back that up with some Old Testament passages. And so in verse 34, uh, we read this, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? And so this passage, we won't go there, but it's taken from Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. And there, um, if we were to go to that passage, it, you'll see that it's referring to God being alone in the work of creation. That's one of his uh, you know, crowning achievements in terms of when we look at the, the vastness of what he's created, we're, we're blown away. We're, we're just, we really marvel at everything that he does. In fact, you know, as scientists and researchers are still discovering animals that they never knew existed or species that they never knew existed, thinking that they had this unlimited wealth of knowledge and then God lets one be found and say, oh yeah, I guess we didn't know everything. But now we do until he lets them find another one. But now we do. Unless he, <laughs> and you see this unlimitless. And, and, you know, one of the things that is just incredible as you consider God in creation, he, he had all the wisdom and knowledge that he needed to execute his plan. And you know what? He alone possessed that. And nobody taught him those things. That's just what he knows. That's just who he is. And, you know, that's why when you look at some of the, even the miracles of, of creation, um, you know, and I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just going off that, but, you know, like even the giraffe, they say the, the giraffe should not be able to bend down, get a drink of water and pick its head back up without its head exploding. And yet God knew how to make a giraffe. It wasn't like three of them did it. And he said, man, why does this? You know, model 1.0 is not working. This head keeps exploding. How can I fix this? Let's go to 2.0 and then waiting for the update until we get to, you know, 10. You know, 10.0 is where everything stops changing. But that's not what he did. He created. He spoke them into existence. He knew all of this stuff. He knew how to make them. You just, it's just incredible. And so uh, Isaiah is writing there about the creative work of God, but uh, you go on in verse 14 of Isaiah 40, and he, and he says, who taught him justice or knowledge? Who taught God how to be just, how to be fair? Did he take law courses and graduate from legal school? Did he spend many years on a judicial bench working through cases, getting to a point where he, no, and that's, that's the implication of Isaiah. No one taught him. He, this is who he is. This is what he knows. He doesn't need anybody to teach him. And, and again, just emphasizing that fact that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He alone has the wisdom. He alone has the knowledge. And in specifically in this passage, as we look in Romans 9 through 11, uh, it, as it relates to his plan of salvation for Israel and the Gentiles, he's got it all figured out. He's got it under control. Verse 35, or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him. This time we, we have, uh, he quotes from a couple of verses in the book of Job. 
Um, and there it refers to Job's observation that God has never needed to depend upon human assistance. Thus, he has never been in debt to man. You know, it wasn't as if somebody came before God and instructed him on how to be a God. And then, and then now God owes that person some great debt of gratitude. It's, it's not that at all. He's, he's unique amongst uh, anything. He's distinct from his creation. He's above his creation. All of these things are coming forth in this verse. This was something that was recognized in the book of Job. Again, this verse just illustrates the distinction between God, his abilities, his knowledge, his wisdom versus our own. And we can trust him to work all these things out in only the way that he can do. And it's just one of those things that we can trust him to keep his promises. One of the reasons we can trust him because he's got it all figured out. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody else. He doesn't need somebody else to sign the check, right? You know, I, I remember working for an organization one time where in order to get paid, I needed two people to sign my check. And inevitably, one was always out on Friday, right? And so I'd be there, but at the end of the day, I get my check. I got one signature. I'm like, oh man, where's, you know, where's Joe? Well, Joe's gone for the day. I guess I have to get paid on Monday. You know, it's not like God needs somebody else to sign off on his decisions or sign off on your eternal life. He's self-sufficient. He makes those decisions. And so he can guarantee you and promise, uh, and you can trust him for those promises. And then finally in verse 36, he says this, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Uh, Amen. And so verse 36 says, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Again, for, you know, there again to explain, just explain and further expand. Why is God so unique? Why can we trust him? Well, overall, what we're going to see here is God's got a plan. God has got a plan. That is, I mean, that is encouraging to know. And so he says these three phrases, uh, he literally says, of him means out of or from him. Through him means through him, by, by means of him. And then to can mean to or for him. And so as we look at that a little bit more closely, out from him, we, we see that this plan that Paul has just been describing in Romans 9 through 11 came from God. Came, came out of the mind of God. God is the one who derived this plan. God is the one who thought it up. God is the one who executed it. And how did he execute it? Well, he executed it himself through him. He's the one who did it. And so God accomplished his plan by um, sending Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ accomplished the plan. You know, that's one of the things we talk about a lot, just on a simplistic level. You need a righteousness that only is equal to God's righteousness. You can't get it yourself. God has provided it through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how he did it. And so it's through him. And then we see this final phrase, it was to him or for him. And we gotta understand that, that although God loves you, Jesus died for you, we gotta understand that ultimately God put this together for his glory. It's for him. It's to him. It's for him. It brings him glory and grace. And every single one of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ is gonna be a trophy of God's grace for eternity. As people look at you and point and say, look at that trophy. Look at that trophy. Look at that trophy. You ever been in someone's trophy room? 
There's always a story behind a trophy, isn't there? Well, let me tell you about this one. Let me tell you about the final game. Usually it's a, a fish story that gets a lot bigger over the years, you know. We, were, we were, really were losing by five, but now, 20 years later, we were losing by 20, you know, with one minute left. And, but, I, but as you get to heaven, to think of yourself as a trophy of God's grace. And as someone sees you walking down the, the streets of gold saying, God, why is he here? Well, let me tell you why is she here. <laughs> God's going to say, let me tell you about them. Let me tell you about what, what happened in their life. Let me tell you about the person that shared the gospel with them. Let me, let me tell you about how they responded to me. And let me tell you how their heart was, was with me and they desired to follow me. And, and you know what? You're right. You saw them. They weren't always perfect. But you know what? They're here because of my grace. There's another trophy of my grace. And there goes another one. And there goes another one. And there, in fact, everyone here is a trophy of my grace. And there's going to be a story there. But God does this for himself. And so this doxology, as we finish Romans chapter 11, puts the focus on where the focus should be. It's always about God. It's always about his plans. It's always about the way that he does things so well and how he planned. And so when we look at even just Israel, you know, the, the, this plan for Israel that we've been looking at, this is God's plan. That's it. So it's good. That's a good plan. The plan for the Gentiles, that's his plan. So it's, it's a good plan. We can trust in his plan. The plan for the church, that's his plan. That's, that's his plan. He put it together. He's executing it. That's why when we look in, uh, in a couple of weeks when we start our epidemic series, the first thing we're going to look at is what is Jesus Christ's plan for you and I right now? And he's building his church. That's what he wants to do. That's his plan. He's going to accomplish that. And so we look at that and we just rejoice in the fact that God's plan are good. In fact, Paul ends the whole section with to whom be glory forever. And then he says this word, amen. Let it be. So, so be it. And see, it can also be an exclamation there. And so, anyways, let's, we'll close with a word of prayer there this morning. Again, love to invite you back for Celebration Sunday next week. Lord, thank you for um, your word. Uh, we come to a section like this and we, we just, we simply look at it and we agree with the Apostle Paul. Wow, uh, we're, we're amazed. I think um, we don't know uh, the half of it we see in part right now uh, in, in light of your character and the way that you did all these things. But uh, we desire to learn more. We desire uh, to understand you better uh, so that we might just um, even increase our volume <laughs> going forward when we say the word wow as we think about what you've done and what you've accomplished. And so, uh, Lord, we're grateful. Uh, we are grateful for this local church and all of the years that you've allowed this uh, church to remain in existence and uh, to accomplish the ministry that you've set forth uh, for this local body. So we, we praise you for that in anticipation of next week uh, as we celebrate that time uh, with one another. We get excited to, uh, to know that you're still working here, uh, that you've worked in great ways in the past, and that you've got a future uh, for this local church as well. So we're grateful to be a part of that. Thank you. It's a privilege uh, to be here at this time in history. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.